Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans has been clear about the problem plaguing the world from the time of Adam. The problem of sin that has affected everyone and everything since the world began. It has been made clear that everyone who has ever lived has sinned, and that means that we don't measure up to God's glory. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What happens when someone doesn't measure up to the glory of God? What is the danger that sin brings with it? Sin brings forth death and condemnation. That's the penalty that must be paid for sin. That is the wage that is earned by sinning. But there's hope because God didn't simply allow mankind to just destroy himself in his sin. He didn't look down on earth and see the mess that man had made and, think, and say to himself, I'm going to just let, leave these fools to themselves. Because God loved the world. He intervened and it was his intervention that was required. Because in order to live with him, it's his perfect standard that must be met. Romans 5, verses 8 and 9 said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God sent his Son. We saw in chapter 8, um, Romans chapter 8, we also uh, saw, see in John chapter 3 that he sent his own unique son, his own begotten son, who was both God and man. He sent him to die for us. He sent him to die for the sins of the world so that whoever believes in him won't suffer the condemnation that is due them because of their sin. Jesus paid the penalty for those sins on the cross. The person who believes in him is then justified through faith. Declared to be righteous before God. Romans 5.26 said that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Therefore, having been justified, we are no longer condemned. And that's how Romans chapter 8 started. This chapter that we're in right now, verse 1 said, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is absolutely no condemnation. The one who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation never has to worry about spending eternity separated from God. The salvation that God provides is totally sufficient to take care of the penalty of condemnation that was required because of our sin. We saw in verse 3 that the Mosaic Law required God's standard which we could not meet. Because our flesh, our body, with its sinful nature, was weak. And therefore, God had to meet the requirements, the righteous requirements of the law for us. And how did he do that? The last part of verse 3 said, Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. By sending his son, he condemned sin. Sin had condemned us, therefore God did what was necessary to condemn sin. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been freed from the power of sin. Sin no longer controls us. In verses 5 through 8, we started looking at the distinction between those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. 
Those who walk according to the flesh are those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They are still under the control of their sins. We saw several things about them, several things about them in those verses. We saw that they set their minds on the flesh. They are hostile towards God. They do not subject themselves to the law of God. They cannot subject themselves to the law of God. And they are unable to please God in anything that they do. This shows the total depravity of mankind. Without God's intervention, mankind is totally lost in his own sin without any hope of ever fixing that problem. Contrast that with those who are in Christ. They are the ones who walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh. We saw that they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind on the Spirit is life, a benefit that we receive in salvation. And it is peace, he says, peace that comes through knowing Christ. And that's not a peace that's a feeling, although we can have that. It's not that we just feel at peace, but we are at peace with God. We are no longer his enemy. We have no enmity with God anymore. We are on his side in peace, a peaceful relationship. Now, as we come to verse 9, we'll spend time looking at those who are in the Spirit. The contrast of really what we looked at last time when we were talking mostly about those that are in the flesh. We'll see just what it means to be in the Spirit and what are the results in my life of being in the Spirit. So look with me at verse 9. He says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now note right off the bat that he starts this contrast. However, you... And so he's turning his attention to these believers in Rome, those to whom he's writing. What he's going to present here about them is in contrast with what he talked about with those who are still condemned, what we had seen previously. These Roman Christians, and by extension, all Christians, he says, you are not in the flesh. You do not live under the domination of the flesh as unbelievers do. You do not live in that realm any longer. And as a result of that, from what he said in the previous verses, you are not in the position where you cannot please God. You are not hostile towards God. You are not unable to subject yourself to God. You are not what Paul just described. What are you? He says, in the Spirit. You live in the spirit, under his control, under his realm and authority. It's what we saw back in verse 2. But verse 2 said, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. As a believer, you are in the spirit and under the law of the spirit. Now, that's what's true of you. The realm in which you now exist, if you fit the condition. Now, there's a conditional statement that he presents here, and actually there's going to be four conditional statements that he presents in the next three verses here. And now, these conditional statements are of the variety where there is certainty about them. Sometimes we say that you could replace the word if with the word since to get the general idea, okay? And we'll see that when we look at this first one here. The first conditional statement is says, you are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
if the Spirit is in you, or since the Spirit is in you, then you are in the Spirit. There's that mutual relationship there. You are in the Spirit only if the Spirit is in you. And since you are a believer, since you are justified, He is in you. There's no such thing as a believer in Jesus Christ who does not have the Holy Spirit residing in them. Dwells is the word that he used here. It's a Greek word meaning a residence or a house, to inhabit or live within a dwelling or house. The Holy Spirit is not visiting. He has taken up residence within the believer. He is here to stay. The Holy Spirit lives within the believer. Paul then clarifies the statement with a second condition to to show the, the severity of what he's talking about. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If the Spirit doesn't dwell within someone, then they don't belong to Jesus Christ. That person is not a believer in Jesus Christ. He's made it very clear, someone who has the Spirit and only someone who has the Spirit belongs to God. It's a mutual relationship. There's a mutual relationship here between the believer and God. Same type of relationship, really, that Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. Turn with me over to John's gospel. And I'm just going to warn you now, there's going to be a lot of verses today to turn to. So just get ready, get your fingers ready. A person who belongs to God isn't a casual bystander of the things of God. Sometimes we get the impression that, oh, I believe in God, now I'm just going to stand over here and not worry about anything else until it's time for me to go to heaven. That's not the way that that works. He or she who has believed in God is right in the thick of things. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4 of John chapter 15. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit, of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing, he says. And here we see this mutual relationship that we're talking about that Jesus Christ has with those who belong to him. The believer abides or remains in Christ. And Christ abides or remains with the believer. It's not simply a one-way relationship where we follow Christ or where he just gives us whatever we want. That's some people's idea of Christianity. Oh, now I I have a free ticket to get whatever I want from God. There is a mutual union between the Redeemer and his redeemed. Without this union, Jesus says, we can do nothing. The one who is in Christ and has Christ in him bears much fruit, he says. There's evidence of this abiding union in a person's life. Just like Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, right? In Galatians 5, we see that list of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit that the Spirit yields in the life of the believer. These are things that a Spirit-filled life produces. But just like we've seen, been seeing with those in the flesh, there's another part of the equation. What about the one who doesn't abide? Well, still here in John 15, what about someone who doesn't remain in Christ? He says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. 
Jesus here is using a figure of speech, but the idea is pretty clear. Whoever doesn't remain in Christ doesn't make it, doesn't survive. This is, there's destruction in their future. Now, this isn't an indication of losing salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. We'll see that as we continue on in Romans chapter 8. This is an indication that this person never belonged to him in the first place. Because only one who truly belongs remains. Jesus Christ is the source of life, and that life only comes through having a saving relationship with him, a true saving relationship. And we saw last time that the one who has their mind set on the flesh elsewhere, not on the things of God, is equivalent to death, and that's spiritual death. Sin and death go hand in hand. So back in Romans chapter 8, the idea here is the same. The believer in Jesus Christ is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the believer. This means that all believers walk according to the Spirit, and not according to the flesh, and according to their own sinful nature. Now, that doesn't mean that a believer doesn't, a believer doesn't sin on occasion from time to time, and we've talked about that in the past. But it does mean that the pattern of a believer's life is that he follows the Spirit, follows the authority of the Holy Spirit. There's a permanent indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit comes into a person at the moment of their salvation, takes up residence there, and stays there. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is mentioned many times in the New Testament. And I want to point out a few of these. This is where get your fingers ready, because we're going to turn to several passages here. Because I think it's important that we understand that this isn't just something that Paul mentions here. This is foundational in the life of the believer throughout Scripture. If you're still in John, turn back to chapter 7 of John's Gospel. And even if you're not still in John, turn back to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus here promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 38 of John chapter 7, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now he explains this in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus here tells them the Spirit is coming. They will receive him. He will be in their innermost being. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, he makes a reference here. Paul makes a reference here to the church. Down in verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now again, this is a reference to the church, but the church is what? It's not a building. The school doesn't become the church. We are the church. Believers are the church. So as the church, you are a temple of God and the Spirit dwells in you. Turn over to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Here he's talking about He's talking about sin. He's talking about why we shouldn't sin. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. That's the phrase that we're familiar with in Romans. Absolutely not. 
our bodies are members of Christ. When a believer falls into sin, it is all the more repulsive. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. Down in verse 19, we see the reason why. Verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? The Spirit is in you. There's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. See the same thing here. 2 Corinthians 6, look down at verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Believers, the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit is there with us. What, what association or what agreement do we have with idols or anything else that's worldly or sinful? Galatians chapter 4. This is a verse that you'll remember because we'll, we'll mention this one a couple of times in our study today. Galatians 4, verse 6. He says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has sent forth His Spirit into our hearts, giving us the relationship to call Him Abba, Father, an intimate, personal father-son relationship that we now have with God. And we'll see more about that as we move on in our verses in Romans 8. 1 John chapter 3, another one. I told you they were a lot. We have two more, but they're both in 1 John, so... 1 John 3, look down at verse 23. He says, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Believe in Him. Keep His commandments. So again, we're talking about that mutual abiding. We abide in Him. He abides in us. And we know that He abides in us because He has given us His Spirit. The Spirit indwells us. Chapter 4 of 1 John. Just one page over. Look at verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. You see how this works. He is in you. Greater is he that is in you, the believer, than he that is in the world. There isn't anything or anyone that can overcome us. Why? Not because of us, not because of how great we are, but because of he who indwells us. That's the Holy Spirit of God himself. You see, the Bible is very clear on this. If you have placed your faith and trust in the message of the gospel, if you have believed in the atoning work of Christ on the cross, then the Holy Spirit is now indwelling you. He has set up residence within you. He does not leave. He does not take vacations. He does not get fed up and move out. Although sometimes we might think, why doesn't he do that? But the Holy Spirit is there to stay because you now belong to God if you are in Christ. 
So back in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You may notice that the Spirit is used interchangeably as Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. And it's really, the, it's the same Spirit, right? It, and it shows the deity of Jesus Christ. The Spirit indwelling the body of the believer it's the, is the Spirit of the Father. It's the Spirit of the Son. It's the same Spirit. And this comes out in verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, this is another one of those conditional statements I, I was mentioning. If he's in you and he is in you, since Christ is in you is what Paul is saying here. This isn't saying that Christ and the Spirit are the same person, but effectually, where you have one, you have the other. Where you have one person of the triune God, you have them all. They all have the same mind. They have the same will. They are part of the same God, right? One God, only one God, not three gods, one God, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, can I sit here and explain the Trinity to you in detail? Not hardly, but I know that that's how he exists because that's what Scripture shows us to be true. In the beginning was the Word. It was worth God, and it was God. Jesus here on earth, speaking about himself and the Father, distinctly says in John 12, 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. He who beholds the Son beholds the Father. So in the same way, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, then Christ is in you. God himself is in you. I think sometimes we tend to have a lesser view of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's just me, but maybe I'm just up here confessing again. But we think of Father, Son, and their assistant, the silent partner. Jesus does refer to him as the helper or the paraclete, right? But that doesn't mean that in any way that he's lesser. The Holy Spirit is fully God, just as the Father, just as the Son. They are all a part of the whole. So the Spirit is in you. Christ is in you. It's the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. The Holy God resides in you as a believer. Though the body is dead because of sin, he says, for those in the Spirit, the physical body is dead. This physical body has been corrupted by sin. We've talked about that. Sin has had an effect on these bodies. When Adam first sinned, one of the first things that God told him was he would die. He would return to the dust. Sin started the process of death, and our physical bodies are not exempt from that. We've talked about the three parts of sanctification before, many times in the last several chapters that we've been studying. We are set apart from sin's penalty, from its power, and someday we'll be set apart from its very presence. Chapter 6 told us that it's, we're free from its power. We saw in verse 1 of this chapter that we're free from its penalty. There is now no condemnation. But we are still in the presence of sin. We are still in these bodies that are dead because of sin. We saw that in chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, Paul said in verse 24, who will set me free from the body of this death? This is the same thing, the body of this death. This body is dead. Our physical bodies are dying. They are on the decline. Some of us who are getting a little older, that becomes clearer for us every morning when we get up. 
Oh, why does that hurt? These bodies will continue to decline until we are physically dead. But that doesn't affect our spiritual life that we have in Christ. He says here in the verse, yet the spirit is alive. And I really think the better translation there is, yet the spirit is life. I would say that that's a reference still to the Holy Spirit, not to our internal spirit. All references to this point have been to the Holy Spirit, and I think that that fits better with what's coming when he gets to verse 11, where we see the more detail of the life-giving of the Holy Spirit. But he was called the Spirit of life in verse 2, and we see in verse 11 that he will give life to these dead bodies that we're in. So it is certainly true that he has made our spirits alive, and we are spiritually alive, but I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. I believe what's being said is that while these bodies are dead because of sin, the Spirit who indwells us is life because of righteousness. And what Paul is saying is this, since we have Christ in us, even though we still live in these mortal bodies, these bodies of flesh that are dying, the spirit of life resides within us because of righteousness. Righteousness is what made this possible in us. Because righteousness has been credited to us. We have been brought up to God's righteous standard. Not our own righteousness, but God's righteousness. So the life-giving spirit has come to reside in us on the basis of our justification, being declared righteous by God. And that is why and when he took up residence in us, right? At the moment of our justification, the Holy Spirit came, to, came upon us. So what does this mean? What's the effect of this? We see it as we come to verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I've been promising you for a few weeks now that the answer to Paul's question in verse 24 of chapter 7 is right, is here in chapter 8. And this is the answer. This is that answer that I've told you is coming. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. This is our last conditional phrase here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. As we've already seen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. This is a done deal. So what does that mean for us? It means that every part of the Trinity is at work to give life to you as well. God the Father sent His Son and raised God the Son who died on the cross for your sins. He raised Him from the dead. And His Spirit, that same Spirit that was at work in the Son, will give life to your mortal bodies as well. We still live in these mortal bodies, but we are indwelt by the life-giving Spirit who is going to bring about a miraculous change in us one day. The presence of the Holy Spirit is proof that believers will obtain a resurrected, glorified body, the same kind of body that Jesus has. This is the separation from the presence of sin that we've been talking about. This is that event. And when is that? When will this occur? For us in the church, this occurs at the rapture, the rapture of the church. 
when we will either be caught up with him in the clouds if we're still alive, we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds and we'll be transformed, or when our bodies that have already died are resurrected at the time of the rapture and we're rejoined with our spirit. That's the time frame for those in the church to have this fulfilled. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. More verses. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul starts Ephesians with this insanely long run-on sentence, so we'll just kind of cut into the middle of it in verse 13. He says in verse 13, In him, Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Sealed in the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge. That's a word for down payment, earnest money. We understand that when we're buying things, right? You give earnest money to guarantee something. He is the guarantee that God will complete the work of redemption in us. He began it when we were justified. He will certainly complete it when we are in glory with him. That is part of the inheritance that we have as his children. And we'll talk about that in a a little bit here in Romans 8. There are other passages that talk about this as well. well. I was just going to read them for you, but I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, because in 1 Corinthians 15, I don't see how we can't look at this. This is the great passage on the resurrection. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't look at it together. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The idea of the first fruits is taken from the concept of a coming harvest, right? First fruits are representative of what is going to come. There's more coming. Now we come to verse 21 and we see the same arguments made here that Paul made in chapter 5 of Romans, talking about the first and the last Adam. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We saw these same concepts when we were studying through chapter 5. Sin and condemnation came through Adam. Redemption and life come through Jesus Christ. That includes resurrection. But verse 23, look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. When he returns, this is for the church. This is, again, that time of the rapture. There will be resurrection for our dead bodies at that time. Dead bodies and mortal bodies. You see, it's all part of that same package. Resurrection and glorification. Turning these corrupted bodies into glorified bodies. That was always a part of the plan. Always. That wasn't something that God thought of later. That was always part of the plan. We just haven't gotten to that point yet. Some other passages, and I will just read these. You can take a little break. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. 
2 Corinthians 4.14 says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. We will be raised with Jesus, even as Christ was raised. Over and over again, we see this promised in Scripture. We have been spiritually raised already. We will also receive bodily resurrection. There is a time where these bodies will be changed. Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 says for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself our bodies will be transformed from mortal bodies to immortal bodies that is coming for us someday we experience physical death because of our bodies but we have hope even in death because we anticipate the completed redemption of our bodies in addition to what has already happened to us spiritually what has happened to us now in the way that we exist now is just a preview of what is coming for us someday in glory then we will be free from even this body of death and we will no longer have that struggle with sin that Paul was talking about at that, that last part of Romans chapter 7. So we have a new life, one that has already started, but one day it will culminate, it will be perfected in glory. And that is 100% absolutely true for every believer. And that truth is something that affects the way that we live our lives today, or it should affect the way that we live. We are to live today in light of all that God has done for us in the past, is doing in us now today, and will complete in us in the future. So now, starting in verse 12, if you're back in Romans 8, I don't remember where I left you, but we're back in Romans 8, Paul begins to show the practical side of this this relationship with the Spirit and what it means for the believer today. and How are we to live this out? He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So Paul begins to develop some of the implications that this new life entails. So then, here are some of the conclusions. We are under obligation, he says. The word obligation is a word that means to be a debtor. Similar to what Paul used in verse 14 of chapter 1, where he, he talked about having an obligation to those that he shared the gospel with. There was a debt that he had to pay. Here he uses the same word, that we are under obligation, but we are not debtors to the flesh. We have no obligation to the desires of the flesh. We've talked about this before. We saw it back in chapter 6. It's the same thing as being under sin. We had no obligation to sin. We are free from its power and its authority over us. Well, what have we seen here? Being in the flesh is death, just like sin is death. It's the same thing. Being in the flesh is being unsaved. We are not obligated, and it's not even an option for us. A believer cannot live according to the flesh. 
Paul has gone over this many times in many ways in the last few chapters. And he does so again when we get to verse 13 where he says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Living according to the flesh, under the control and the authority of the flesh, a life that is focused on the interests here, in this world, in this body. If you live this way, if that is the pattern of your life, he says, you must die. Those living according to the flesh must die. There are no exceptions to this rule. This goes beyond just physical death. This, he's talking about eternal death here. This is the life of the unbeliever, completely, absolutely opposite to what he said back up in verse 1, where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the contrast that he's making here, right? Those that are in in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But here, if you're living in the flesh, you must die. So for believers, those indwelt by the Spirit, we have died with Christ. This was established, again, in chapter 6, identified with death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now we see here in the life of the believer, there is an ongoing act of putting to death the deeds of the body. This is something that we must do. We will not indulge our bodies in sin. There will be temptations But as believers, we now have the ability to put those temptations to death. Not only the ability, but the responsibility of putting those things to death. We've seen that we have died to sin, but we've also seen that these bodies of flesh that we are in want to gravitate towards sin. And that only brings one outcome, death. As believers, we live in a body of sin that we must control, that we must put its deeds to death. Another passage. I'll just read this one. I don't know how much time this is going to take for the rest of it. Colossians 3, in verse 3, Paul says, Therefore you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And this is just what we saw in Romans chapter 6. We have died and now our life is hidden with Christ. Once again, it's the mutual relationship that we saw in verse 9 of chapter 8. In verse 4, He shows the same hope that we've been talking about in Romans as well. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Again, there's that guarantee. There's that promise for those that are in Christ. We will be revealed with him in glory. But then, talking about that same hope of glory, he says this in verse 5 of Colossians 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Again, this is how we are to live. Paul is notorious for this. He'll present truths about the Christian life and then gives commands on how we are to live out our lives based on those truths. We are to consider the members of our body as dead. Do not indulge in those activities, in greed, in immorality, in evil desires, those things he lists there, but put them to death. There's an obligation for us to do this. There is no obligation of these types of activities in our lives any longer. We do not have to do these things. We looked at this in Romans chapter 6. Flip over to Romans 6 for just a minute, verse 12, on your way uh, 
I was going to say way back to Romans chapter 8, but I didn't have you go to Colossians. Look at verse 12 of Romans 6. Therefore, again, based on what he'd said previously, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Do not present your members as instruments of sin. Don't do it. There is a command for us not to do these things. We are to put those things to death. Consider them as dead. As believers, that is an obligation that we have now to live this way, to put them to death. But the question is, how do we do it? That sounds easy, but how do we do it? Well, he mentions it here. If by the Spirit. We do it living by the Spirit. See, this is key for us. This is what we have to remember. As believers in Jesus Christ, those who are now in Christ, have Christ in us. Those who are now in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us, we now have a resource within us that is able to put to death the deeds of the body, to resist that allurement of the flesh. We aren't able to do it on our own. On our own, that, that's where we were before. When Israel was, was trying to keep the law, right? Paul said they couldn't do it because of the weakness of their flesh. They couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. Nobody could meet God's righteous standard. But now we have the Holy Spirit within us. We have that resource of the Spirit. We are to submit to the Holy Spirit. We are to be allowing Him to influence us and exercise His control over us, giving no room for the desires of the flesh to take hold in us. When we sin, people sometimes ask, when we sin, then if the Holy Spirit's in us, is that the Holy Spirit leading us into sin? No, absolutely not. Sin is what happens when we take our eyes off of the Holy Spirit and put them on the world put them on the flesh, someplace, any place other than the Holy Spirit. I, I get a picture into my mind sometimes of, sometimes I use the example of a bull, but I think a toddler is a, is a better example. Taking a toddler into a china shop, that's not a good thing, a good place to put them, is it? Have a toddler running around in there? Well, you have to have that toddler focused on you, right? There's all these glass things that they want to touch and that they want to they want to mess with. But you have that toddler focused and you say, eyes on me, eyes on me. And if they're doing it and they're focused where they should be, then you can keep them from breaking little glass figurines in the shop. But it's when they take their eyes off of where they're supposed to have them, that's when trouble comes in. That's the way it is with us. We take our eyes off the spirit and we see the shiny thing over here, the shiny thing over there, and we're not focused where we need to be focused. That's where we as believers run into trouble. It's that same type of thing. We struggle with how do we deal with this sin and that sin? What about this sin? What about this situation that I'm in? It's all the same. We deal with it all the same way. We submit to the Holy Spirit. We talked before about being dead to sin about it not having control over us. Here's the practical way that we deal with it. Submit to the Holy Spirit. We struggle with it from time to time, but what it comes down to is where is your mind fixed? Where is your focus? And we looked at this last week. 
Is it fixed on the flesh, on the world and the things around us? Is that where we have a tendency to look around and let our eyes out of the corner of our eyes see this thing and that thing? Or is it fixed on the things of God, fixed on the things of the Spirit? Following the Spirit is really a matter of having the right focus. Reading and memorizing Scripture, repeating it over and over again to yourself. When you're in Scripture, I'll bet, I'll bet you anything, when you're in Scripture, you don't find your mind wandering to sinful things. When you're memorizing Scripture, that's how God communicates with us, through His Word. It's not the Holy Spirit giving us direct commands. It's the Holy Spirit communicating to us through the Word of God. That's how we understand what God wants for our lives. We can sing hymns to ourselves instead of the latest Taylor Swift song. We can pray without ceasing. Instead of watching a questionable show or movie or even the news these days, turn those things off and read your Bible. Those are all things that we can do, practical things that we can do. Get your focus off of the world and put it on the things of God. Focus our minds on the Spirit, not on the flesh. Now we come to verse 14, and he expands on this. He further clarifies it. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For all, inclusiveness, inclusiveness, none are left out here. All who are being led, he's talking about those who are putting to death deeds of the body by the Spirit. That means you are led by the Spirit. Someone who is led by the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the body. They go hand in hand. So again, putting to death the deeds of the body is fundamentally a work of the Holy Spirit. We still have an active part in that. We are still putting them to death daily, ongoing, but we do it through the Spirit of God. We are being led where He leads us, following after where He is leading us. People try to make a distinction today between Christians who are led by the Spirit and Christians who aren't led by the Spirit. This ignores all the distinctions that we have seen so far in Romans. It's very black and white as Paul presents it here. There aren't spirit-led Christians and non-spirit-led Christians. There are those who are led by the Spirit, which are Christians, and there are those who are not led by the Spirit, or non-Christians, or unbelievers. What does Paul say here? All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. He uses the phrase sons here. Later on, he'll talk about children. It's really the same thing. The believer in Jesus Christ is a child of God, is a part of the family of God, a son of God. What is the characteristic of a son of God? A son of God is one who is led by the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a believer who is not led by the Spirit. All believers are led by the Spirit. He is your authority. He is your leader. He has control in your life. What about when I sin? I'm not under his control then. He's not leading me then, is he? A believer is always led by the Spirit, never led into sin. But what happens when we sin? We're rebelling against that authority. We're the toddler who reaches out for the trinket, even though mom or dad has told us, don't touch anything. That's why verse 13 was so important. There is responsibility on our part to go where the Spirit is leading us, to submit ourselves to Him daily and to put to death those things of the flesh. 
There's a daily responsibility we have in this to daily, continually give ourselves over to where the Spirit is leading us. And once again, how do we know where the Spirit's leading us? In His Word. If we are a believer and we don't read the Word of God, we don't know what God wants for us. God is not going to give it to us in dreams. He doesn't communicate to us directly. He communicates to us through His Word. If you want to live your life by the Spirit, you need to be in His Word daily. Living the Christian life involves daily sacrifice. It involves submission to our Lord and Master daily. Not occasionally, but daily. What have we seen before in Galatians chapter 5? Paul says in verse 16 there, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It is a command to follow the Spirit. This is responsibility on our part. There is no let go and let God. We have duties and responsibilities to carry out to live obedient lives. That is living the sanctified life. That is where we're, what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 8. So a believer in Jesus Christ, a true child of God, is led by the Spirit. Someone who is a son of God is not characterized by the things of this world. I don't think this can be any clearer here. Sin in the life of the believer should be an awkward thing. It should stand out even in the eyes of the world. I told you last week, I don't like this getting around, but I told you last week about my mom's one swear word, right? That was completely out of character for her, right? That's what sin in the life of the believer should be like. That doesn't make any sense that they would do that or say that. That's how it should be. If we find it easier and easier to sin and harder and harder to follow God, I would say we need to look at our lives because something is seriously wrong. When we examine our lives, do we really look at our character or do we rely on a statement and a prayer that we made at one point in time? Are we fooling ourselves is what we need to ask ourselves. Well, he goes on in verse 15. I'm trying to get through 17 this morning, so just to give you a note of where we're at. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The two uses of the word spirit here, references uh, in both cases, again, to the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God is not a spirit of slavery leading to fear. When we were in sin, that's what we were. We were slaves to sin. What did that slavery bring? What was its outcome? Death. It was slavery that had no hope. It was slavery that could only bring fear. That's not what we have any longer being in the spirit. So what do we have? What kind of spirit do we, have we received? A spirit of adoption as sons, he says. Having the Spirit of God within us has made us a part of the family of God. You remember back in chapter 6, we had, he used the analogy of slavery again there when he talked about both aspects of our lives. Slavery to sin, but then moving into slavery to righteousness, going from one form of slavery to another. He said he used that analogy because of the weakness of our flesh. It, he understood that analogy wasn't perfect, but it made it understandable to us. But now, Paul no longer talks about slavery again, but now he's talking about adoption into the family of God. 
we have become sons of God. We saw in verse 14 that we are sons of God. Here we see that becoming sons of God is a ministry, again, of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to function as a part of his family. And if you think about how remarkable this is, back in chapter 5, what did we see about ourselves? We were the enemies of God, right? We stood at enmity with God when we were unbelievers. And now we have been adopted into the very family of God. That's a miraculous thing that has occurred in our lives. It's by this ministry of the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. It is this relationship brought about by the Holy Spirit in our lives that gives us the privilege, the right, this intimacy with the Almighty God to cry out in this way. Abba is an Aramaic term for father, used as a term of familiarity or closeness. I would say it's, it's similar to crying out, Dad. The emphasis is on the close family relationship that we've been brought into. The word was first used by Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane. Verse, uh, Mark 14, 36 says, And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When he was appealing to his father before his crucifixion in that intimate moment between them. We saw it used earlier in Galatians chapter 4, a verse I mentioned um, in a similar way as well. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, ministry of the Holy Spirit is because of his presence that we have this relationship, this level of closeness with our Heavenly Father. We have to overcome some cultural biases in our day when we talk about this, because I think sometimes we look at this and we think, oh, this is like saying daddy. People sometimes take this to mean that we now have such an intimacy with God that he's our buddy or he's our pal, and they forget about the respect aspect that we have with our father. In our day, kids growing up thinking of our parents as, as buddies, but there's not a lot of respect all the time uh, that you see in some families really more of a problem with the parents than with the kids. But in the Roman day, back in these days, you didn't have that. You didn't see your parents as buddies. The father of the family was close to his children, but he also had the right of life or death over everyone in his household. The Roman father could have his own child executed if he wanted to. He was completely in his right to do so. So yes, we have that close relationship, but we also have the respect for our father that he is due, not out of fear, but out of love for him. So this is a unique relationship. We don't have a spirit of slavery, but an adoption into his family. We can call him father. The focus is on him, is on God, not on us as his children, but on him as our heavenly father. The picture here is on the child with his eyes fixed towards his heavenly father, crying out to his own heavenly father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The work of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the spirit of the believer that we are children of God. This explains the inner peace that belongs to the believer. Here we have for the first time in chapter 8 the reference to a spirit that's not the Holy Spirit. This is our spirit. We have the Holy Spirit interacting and communicating with our spirit, energizing us, as some commentators would say. The Holy Spirit works through us, but he doesn't 
control our every move. Otherwise, we would never sin. We would never disobey. Instead, he interacts with our spirit. He directs our spirit within us. He gives us peace. He gives us assurance that we are children of God. Um, And he continues on then in verse 17. He says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are the children of God, sons of God, children of God. Same reference. This is the same thing. As the children of God, we have that confidence. Now, what does it mean that we're children? It means that we are heirs also, right? He's going somewhere with this. We're not just in the family of God. We're not just children of God, but we're heirs also, it says. We haven't simply been given a token right to call ourselves children of God. We now have every blessing that comes along with it. In the Roman culture, an adopted child had the same rights to inheritance that any other child had, even natural children would have. An adopted child was every bit as much a part of the family, even as the natural-born children were. And here we see the same thing. As adopted children of God, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us that we are part of God's family. And if we are children, which we are, then we are heirs also. He says, not just heirs, but fellow heirs with Christ. Now, what doesn't this mean? This doesn't mean that we are children the same as Christ is. He is the special, unique, only begotten Son of God. He is God Himself. We are not, we do not become God. We do not take on that nature. We can't take this too far. But I am a fellow heir with Christ, it says. We saw the concept of inheritance in Romans chapter 4. Look at, look at uh, Romans 4. For just a minute, back in verse 13. Here he was talking about for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. When talking about the faith of Abraham and how it was reckoned as righteousness, we see here that Abraham had an inheritance, one that was brought about through faith, an inheritance that he had through faith. He, along with his descendants, would inherit what God had promised them. Look down at verse 16. He says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Once again, it's by faith and not by works that the inheritance that he's talking about here is realized. Not only to the, to the physical descendants of Abraham, those who are of the law, those who are of Israel, but also to those who believe, Jew or Gentile. It is through the promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed, that all believers can take part in that blessing. All those who have the faith of Abraham. So what is the inheritance? Romans 4.13 says that Abraham is the inheritor of the world. That fits with what we're seeing here with Christ's inheritance. What is Christ's inheritance? He is going to come down and take possession of this world. He will sit on the throne of David and rule the entire world. Where will we be? 
We'll get there in our study in Revelation, but Revelation chapter 20 tells us that we will be ruling and reigning with him. I am a fellow heir so that I can call him father, so that when Christ returns, I will be reigning with him. Everyone who's a believer can say that. This is a part of our inheritance. This is what is in store for us in glory. We're going to end there this morning. This is just halfway through verse 17. I was going to go all the way through 17, but we'll save the second half of 17 with our study as we go further along. So let's close in a word of prayer this morning.